Alrighty. I think the special music is not only for your enjoyment, but it gives me an opportunity to run to the bathroom and release these butterflies. <laughs> the uh, They always say getting up here is supposed to get easier each time. I think standing up here sometimes gets a little easier, but coming up with the topics and what are you going to say and preparing sometimes gets almost even more difficult. I guess I can switch mic. Is that working? All right, so my topic that I came up with, and I'm with the holidays and everything, I hope I prepared enough. I never feel like I prepared quite enough, but um, Eden, the fall, and the nature of sin. Now, when I was preparing for this, I was looking back and I saw some interesting comments from uh, the Pope, actually, and it made me realize why some of these things like prophecy and things are important for us to to learn uh, in the Bible and to understand at 100%. Uh, one of the comments he made was in September 2015 when he was in front of the, the U.S. Congress. He said, we know that no religion is immune from forms of individual delusion or ideological extremism. This means that we must be especially attentive to every form of fundamentalism whether religious or of every other kind. Now, primarily what he was referring to here was um, Islamic fundamentalism, right? But we can see that he's kind of pointing at every form of fundamentalism. He's kind of setting the stage for pointing at other forms of fundamentalism, whether that's uh, whether religious or every other kind, political, biblical, whatever, um, you know, if we don't if we don't have fundamental beliefs, you know, what is anything built on? Now, this by itself wasn't really too uh, troublesome because it was it was kind of glossed over. But then he made uh, another interview at the beginning of this month, or I guess at the end of November, where he was interviewing uh, in his in flight on the way home from Africa, and in the interview he made a couple of comments. One of them was, fundamentalism is a disease of all religions. Another thing he said, we Catholics, we have a few, even many, fundamentalists. They believe they know absolute truth and corrupt others. The last thing he said out of his uh, interview was, fundamentalism is always a tragedy. It is not religious. It lacks God. It is idolatrous. I'm not sure exactly what dictionary he's looking at. but uh, So I went ahead and looked at it. Fundamentalism, according to Webster's, Merriam-Webster's dictionary, the first definition is a movement in the 20th century Protestantism emphasizing the literally interpreted Bible as fundamental to Christian life and teaching, or a movement or attitude stressing strict and literal adherence to a, a set of basic principles. So to just have either a basic foundation of what we're going to live off of for our morals or to literally interpret the Bible. So it seems strange to me that he's saying that fundamentalism is, isn't of God or it's, you know, all these other things when it's actually just looking at the Bible literally and to understand a literal record of, um, of history. Now, he's suggesting um, in several of his speeches that all Christian groups, uh, evangelicals, Baptists, Adventists, Pentecostals, they must become more ecumenical, which means each church should represent all the other churches. 
So we would have this blending, right? He basically is aiming for all Christians to join together at the communion table uh, for visible sacramental unity, you know. And I don't have a an issue necessarily with saying that we should all get along. We absolutely should all get along. Um, you know, we shouldn't condemn or judge one religion over another. However, to to have these issues where you know none of our beliefs are sep- are, are are unique, and that we can just toss out fundamentalism and, and the literal reading of the Bible is troubling, I think. Um, hearing what the Pope said, the first thing that popped into my mind was the last few verses of the book of Revelation, which was a dire warning for all of us to take to heart. Revelation twenty-two eighteen nineteen 19 says, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Now, this also brought to mind a couple other reasons of why you know, this is a, as a, as an important prophecy or important warning that we need to uh, keep in mind. But it reminded me of a couple other verses that I was studying on the importance of understanding the prophecy, to really study it down and understand it, not as something that someone else tells us, but to get into the, the Bible and understand it for ourselves, to be able to prove pieces of the, of the uh, prophecy. 1 Timothy 4.1 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. So it seems to me like um, more and more people are departing from the faith, even though they say they're Christians. But if we're saying, let's not even pay attention to the Bible anymore, we might be going back to the same situation that got us in trouble in the Dark Ages. In Second Timothy 4, 3 and 4, also written by Paul, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. They will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. For me to hear fundamentalism is bad uh, is shocks shocks me. You know, um, I think you know understanding God's word is you know a, a very important goal for us all. I think. Um, when I think about whether or not I can trust the Bible, I think about how even looking at Dead Sea Scrolls, when they dated those back to over 2,200 years ago, they match the Bible we have perfectly. You know, it's amazing how well God has preserved the Word. You know, now there are translations that might have some issues here and there, but all those translations based off of that core Bible is identical over thousands of years that we're able to prove. Or I also think about how the Bible is the uh, the only book that has a basis of 100% accurate prophecy. When we look at other books, we look at the, the Tao for Buddhism or the Koran, most other books are missing prophecy. They don't have prophecy that has come true. Some of them may have prophetic uh, uh, visions of the end times, but they don't have active prophecy that's happening. And the Bible 
has tons of prophecy. In fact, the Old Testament alone has over 400 prophetic uh, visions of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. One of the things that I always like was uh, uh, someone said, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And, and it's so beautiful when you actually get into it and you start cross-studying everything and you see all of these these connections. And for me, it's why we have to devote ourselves to understanding the Bible. This slide is because every time I do an intro on a sermon, I forget to pray. <laughs> so bow your heads with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I ask that you bless me with the Holy Spirit, that you can use me as a mouthpiece, that you can calm my nerves and bring this important message of prophecy through me to share with the congregation, that we can understand that the misconceptions that we may have of your grace, your character, are just misconceptions, and that when we understand your word better, that we understand that your, your amazing grace Dear Heavenly Father, I ask that you just use me for your means, that you can call me and, and keep me on topic. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. So our imagination is hyperactive in the quest for a Savior. There's always this nagging sense that we are in danger and we need to be rescued. Evil is out to get us. And a hero comes to save us. And I've, I was one of the worst ones on this. You know, I was, uh, growing up, you know, Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, Iron Man. You know, Iron Man came out. I, you know, that was one of the movies I had to go see, you're out of way and everything. Um, friends of mine would always make fun of me for being so hooked on comic books. The one back there. <laughs> but, uh, that's that nagging sense that we have inside each of us that we need a hero. We need someone to save us. And there's both truth and fiction to this common superhero myth. The fiction is that we need, that we need a savior from mere physical danger uh, by means of physical violence. The real threat is a, of a spiritual nature. And a savior is needed who will liberate us from the dark realities that reside within us. We find the real story beginning in Genesis 3, starting with verse 1. Now, this time, I know last time I had all the verses and I was like, flip to them, and you guys were couldn't keep up. So I have all the verses up here, but we are going to hang out in Genesis for quite a while. So if you feel like following along, you can uh, open the book to Genesis and uh, right around verse uh, chapter 3 and you can follow along with me. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now, if we look at the immediate backstory, we know uh, it re it's revealed that the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, had been recently been created. Their pristine existence is characterized by three main features that we uh, have brought to view in Genesis one and two, and we'll just, I'm just going to quickly go over those. 
Number one, they bear the image of God in their mental, emotional, and moral makeup. That is to say, they possess free will and the capacity for love. Number two, they have genuine and open fellowship with their maker. He walked in the garden with them. I mean, how amazing is that? I, I feel like sometimes I can't even hear him, but they got to walk with him. Number three, they have a relationship with one another in which they are naked and not ashamed. They have no sense of shame because all they know is a self-giving love for one another. It is into this perfect relational environment that an enemy arrives. The serpent, obviously, is a beautiful creature created by God. And we know that it's a beautiful creature that is a, a part of God's creation because it existed before the fall. There was no corruption at that point. But we know that the serpent was not the one that was actually speaking to the woman, that it was the fallen angel, Lucifer, Satan. Um, and it was Satan that was using the, 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 the serpent for communication. In the New Testament, the Satan is described uh, at basically the exact same way as the same serpent of Genesis 3. In Revelation 12, 7 through 9, for example, it speaks of the original war that resulted in Lucifer's expulsion from heaven. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So... Let's return to Genesis 3, and we can observe the temptation and the fall that, perp that was perpetrated by the, by the serpent. In order to understand the fall, uh, we need to notice that Satan approached in subtlety to deceive. Vital questions that we need to ask ourselves are, what is the specific content of his deception, and who is the actual target? As we will see, the account reveals that God is the actual target and that the three main features, and there are three main features of the deception. So Genesis 3, 1. And the Lord commanded man, saying... I don't know why it's having trouble today. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? First of all, Satan cast God's relationship to humanity as one of restriction rather than freedom. Right? He doesn't say the way God said it. You know, you can eat everything here. He says, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So he immediately starts asking, What are the restrictions? What are the limitations? And the truth is God presented to Adam and Eve a vast horizon of freedom with only a single restriction. And with that, and that only with the best interest in their heart. So we can read in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you for in the day that you shall eat of it you shall surely die. But that's when we've just saw that Satan shows up and he reframes that, that picture. 
the insinuation that God is exercising an unnecessary control over them. It's a foreign concept of Eve. She doesn't understand it. She hasn't felt so far controlled. And so she makes an initial effort to refute Satan's claim. And this is why it's always dangerous for us to interact with the devil. Back to chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you, sh shall you touch it, lest you die. So Eve senses she's free, that God loves her, and that he has forbidden the one tree to protect Adam from harm. But then the enemy moves from insinuation to just a bold attack on God with uh, God's very character by using a lie. Verse 4 says, And then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. So here's the second feature of the deception. The intent is obvious. God has lied to you. You can't trust him. You will not die. It's an idle threat intended to hold you down and to control you. And it's an uncomfortable feeling when you think that you're being lied to and being dominated. Having aroused this feeling in Satan, in Eve, Satan then strikes his final blow in verse 5. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So now here we see the third feature of the deception. Satan claims to know God's motive. God knows something you don't. That if you break free from this needless restriction, you'll be elevated to equality with him. And he doesn't want that. God is self-serving and does not really have your best interest at heart. He doesn't love you. With dark genius, Satan has constructed the perfect delusion by first conjuring up a sense of confinement, then dangling before Eve the enticing prospect of alleged freedom. What if it's true, she thinks? It's, one, it's a tantalizing dare, and there's only one way to know, so Eve takes the plunge. In verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. In this account, the biblical record of the fall of mankind and the whole thing on the premise of deception regarding the kind of person God is, that he, uh, of his character. The behavioral part of the problem was preceded by Satan first, creating a deep perceptual distortion in our mind, in the human mind. We discern then that the sin problem is not merely a behavioral problem. Before the act of sin was committed, a false picture of God was installed in the human heart. As a result, trust was broken, which gave way to the behavioral rebellion. It's basically like Adam and Eve had this uh, picture of God, almost like a hard drive or software, right? We, we understood God. We've been interacting with God. Uh, God's been walking with us. We knew what we were supposed to do, what we were allowed. We had this freedom. And... The devil didn't make us just sin. He popped that hard drive out, and he took it away, and he put a new hard drive in. He created a new perception of God. He lied against his character and what the truth was. 
And then the actual sin was inevitable at that point. He didn't tempt them to sin. He tempted them to, to doubt God's character, and the sin just happens. It is crucial that we understand this if we are to grasp what sin is and how the Savior saves us. The disease must be correctly diagnosed if the proper remedy is to be applied. So what happened next? In verses 7 and 7 through 13, we see the direct effects of the fall. And let's carefully notice every aspect of this description. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? And then man said, The woman whom you gave with, to be with me, she gave me the tree, and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Boy, things went bad in a real quick hurry, didn't they? No, he did it. No, he did it. No, he did it. No, he did it. <sighs> what we see here is that the entire mental and emotional landscape of the human soul has become severely damaged and deranged. Five vital insights I've found to, are brought to view in these areas. Number one, shame. Adam and Eve had lost something and they knew it. Their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. There were creatures of pristine innocence, but not anymore. They had been naked all along, but before the fall, their nakedness uh, had been described in these words. Uh, in verse 2.25, it says, They were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So the issue after the fall is not their nakedness per se, but the self-consciousness as the result of the shame. Prior to the fall, there was no shame in their nakedness because they were completely other-centered. All they care about was everyone else in their orientation. Love was the psychological basis for their consciousness. But now that they had become sinners, the result of their entire orient orientation shifted inwardly. It was selfishness. Number two, fear. The shame they now felt for their sin was transposed over their newly adopted picture of God, creating a sense of apprehension toward Him. They now saw their Maker as a self-serving tyrant, which generated an unnatural fear of God. The one they had loved and trusted now appeared to present a threat to them. In their state of delusion, they imagined that their guilt they felt in their hearts was a result of God's attitude towards them. Their sense of self-condemnation was a mirror image of the way God saw them. But they were very wrong. Number three, covering. Adam and Eve made coverings for themselves in an effort to deal with their shame rather than turn to God for help with an, unex with an expectation of mercy. The distorted view of God they now held drove them to self-dependence. Rather than seek forgiveness for their sin, they attempted to manufacture their own solution. We've got to cover ourselves with these leaves. We need to tie it together. We need to take care of this real quick. We need to fix it. All salvation by works, religious systems have their origin here. 
in the psychological derangement of self-dependence that came upon humanity as a result of the fall. Number four, hiding. In addition to manufacturing coverings for themselves, they were also now possessed of an impulse to hide from God. Again, on the premise of the lie they had to believe regarding the character of God, it did not occur to them to expect compassion and acceptance from God. He was this, you know, kind of bad person they've, they've just been told. He was now imagined to be their enemy, so they hid. And human beings have been hiding from God ever since the myriad of obsessions, addictions, fictions, and escape pursuits. Number five, blaming. Whereas before the fall it came natural to live for one another, now it became their natural instinct to cast blame on one another and ultimately upon God. You know, because that's what it comes down to. It's your fault, your fault, your fault, your fault. And then the Satan goes, see God, it's your fault. You gave him one that couldn't eat. <laughs> and human beings have been blaming one another and God ever since that day. Blame casting is a false survival tactic for dealing with shame. By blaming each other, Adam and Eve did not have to face themselves and take responsibility for their actions. Hmm. Yep. So here we have shame, fear, covering, hiding, and blaming. It's a tragic and terrible list, but it's the history of humanity in five short words. All of this was and is the dark aftermath of the fall. And all of it is our inheritance as human beings in the lineage of Adam and Eve. We're all infected mentally and emotionally with the primal lie of the enemy in some form or another, to one degree or another. We all have trust issues, especially with God. We're all strongly inclined for selfishness and rebellion in our relationships. We want to take care of ourselves first. We all carry secret and our subconscious shame as a result of our sins. We know it's wrong, but sometimes we can't help it and we just feel this shame overcome us. We're certain, we're uncertain of God's character and therefore often many of us are afraid of Him constantly. We all incline towards manufacturing our own salvation and find it natural to believe that God must appease, uh, must be appeased and His favor earned by our deeds. We hide from one another and from God in various obsessions, addictions, uh, false narratives, and fictitious projections of ourselves. And we cast blames on others and on God as a way of evading our own guilt. We are all in all quite messed up, deceived, dysfunctional, and downright sinful. But there's good news. It's not all bad news. i got to twist it around here for you guys. That's not the end of the story because Satan is a liar and God is nothing like the enemy that, God, that Satan portrayed him to be. In fact, as we are about to discover, God is love in the most beautiful sense imaginable. This being the case, God immediately set in motion a proactive plan to rescue us. And this brings us to Genesis 3.15, the very first prophecy of the book. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now here we have the very first gospel promise. There's a reason all those... Uh, pronouns are capitalized. 
the promise of good news. It came in the form of a declaration of war spoken by God directly to Satan in the hearing within the earshot of Adam and Eve. God has come in defense of fallen humanity. He addresses our assailant by foretelling that a warrior will be sent through the woman to save the fallen race. The one and only true Savior is coming. This promised warrior will crush the head of the serpent and will wound his own heel in the process. His, in this prophecy, we have the first indication in Scripture of the incarnation and the sufferings of Christ. From this point forward, the various prophets of the Old Testament add layers of detail to fill out the character and the mission of the coming Savior as the one who will fill this covenant prophecy promise. You will notice that God expresses himself in a very definite definite manner here. He says, I will. And this is why we call Genesis 3.15 a promise. God is vowing himself by the absolute certainty of a covenant to pledge to do something. Namely, conquer Satan on our behalf. And how will he do it? Well, it may not be how you expect. It's not going to be like Superman or Batman or any other man-made superhero. Just as we discovered in our previous message that Jesus is an anti-king kind of king, he's also an anti-warrior kind of warrior. He doesn't come to fight with weapons of force or violence. He comes with truth and love, much more formidable weapons. Announcing his arrival to our world, John characterized the promised warrior as the word and the light. Let's take a look at John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Jesus comes to overcome the darkness and save fallen humanity as the word and the light. Words carry information and the light provides, uh, sharpens the vision and provides clarity. Both operates as medium as clarity. And that's highly important to understand that both provide the clarity, both the words and the light. So Jesus embarks on our own, upon our rescue by a convenience of knowledge and illumination. This marks, this makes such sense when we remember that the fall of mankind was achieved by misinformation and darkness. So he's just reversing it. All regarding the character of God. Now Jesus comes as the true word and the true light to deal with the darkness. And the darkness has no chance of overcoming light. You can't turn on a light switch and see darkness overcome the light bulb. It always washes out the darkness. So what precisely is the word that Jesus has for us and the light he shines upon us? If we skip down to verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John wants us to understand that Jesus came into our world as something we could behold, something we could see. See what exactly? The text says, His glory. The word translated here as glory is doxa in Greek. 
It simply means an opinion or an estimate or a view of a person. In the New Testament, according to Strong's Concordance, it says it always refers to a good opinion concerning one resulting in praise, honor, and glory. Therefore, doxa is translated as glory in the sense that God is glorified when we have the correct estimate or view of what manner of person he is. Jesus came into the world to communicate as the word and to reveal as the light an accurate opinion, estimation, and view of God's character. And this intent is made clear in verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Jesus came to declare the Father, being qualified by the fact that He came from the bosom of the Father, or as the New Testament version says, closest relationship with the Father. This is the promised one. The Savior, the hero we really need, He has come to speak the word of truth concerning the character of God. And indeed, He is the word of truth. And what will be the effect of His ministry? In verse 29, John the Baptist sees Jesus and he announces, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus has come to deal with the sin problem. Just like that first promise in Eden had announced and foretold. And how will He do it? John, John's Gospel opens by informing us of Jesus as the Word and the Light who has come to reveal the character of God. And now we see He is also the Lamb. The symbolism of the Lamb invokes the sacrificial ceremonies of the Old Testament throughout the whole process. Beginning with Eden when God made coverings for Adam and Eve as using a skin and creating the first animal sacrifice. Then developed into a covenant of sacrifice God instituted with Abraham in Genesis 15. He developed with greater detail in the sanctuary constructed by Moses in the wilderness, and in each case the sacrifices pointed to the self-sacrifice of God as the coming Messiah. Paul would later interpret the sacrifice of Christ as the means by which God demonstrated His own love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 here we see that God's love was demonstrated in the concrete historical fact that Christ died for us. Rather than abandoning us to our rightful demise, He put Himself in, in place of our substitute. He put himself, uh, the prophet Isaiah foretold the substitutionary death of Christ with the language both horrific and beautiful. So let's listen with your whole heart to every line as I read this. It's Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as the sheep brought before shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. 
He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. So did you catch all that? We're all sinners, the prophet says. Due to sins, we each bear a load of guilt. We stand guilty before God and before our own conscience. But rather than leave us to bear our shame and suffer its terrible consequences, the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And as a voluntary act of self-sacrificing love, Jesus was led to a lamb as a lamb to slaughter. Though perfectly innocent, he was judged as wicked, numbered with the transgressors, and then poured out his own soul unto death on our behalf. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul beautifully summarizes the same prophecy in a single sentence. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And why did He do this? For the simple, profound reason that He literally loves you more than His own life. In Hebrews 9.26, we read this astounding insight. He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Self-sacrificing love was the means and the mechanism for our salvation. And so we see the revelatory aspect of God's plan to save and his substitution dovetail to compose one achievement of supreme love of, for the lost humanity. Moving forward from John 1, we see a pattern of purpose that builds to climax at the cross where Jesus dies as the sacrificial lamb of God. When the first miracle of Jesus is performed, God says, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Notice John's explicit point. In this first miracle of hospitable kindness, Jesus was manifested his glory, the doxa of his character. This is of course loops back to chapter 1 verse 14 in which John announces the word became flesh and lived among us so that we could behold the glory of the Father in him. Chapter 3, verse 14 through 17, Jesus marries the revelation of the Father's love with his up and coming sacrifice on the cross. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. So there are three crucial points that I feel stand out here. One, God loves us. We don't induce God's love. We see 
that this flies in the face of every another notion of sacrifice throughout history in all religions. The common conception in Eden is that human being must suffer and sacrifice in order to appease God and earn His love. But here Jesus teaches the opposite. God already loves us. And because of His love, He voluntarily sacrifices Himself on our behalf. Number two, God does not condemn us. Condemnation is Satan's disposition. And he would like for us to believe that it's God's disposition. Jesus demonstrated that God stands toward us with an attitude of pardoning love. And number three, God saves us. Jesus here teaches that his self-sacrificing death on the cross is the means by which God saves us. And now we come to John chapter 12, 23 through 32. And notice the language here carefully. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from this earth, will draw all my peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Here Jesus states the purpose of his sacrificial death on the cross. To manifest his glory and the glory of his Father, that is to reveal the character of God. And this will produce two grand and astounding achievements. Number one, Satan will be cast out. The lies regarding the character of God will be drained of their credibility. All people will be drawn to God through Christ as his death on the cross reveals that God is indeed love. The death of Jesus on the cross is the complete fulfillment of the promise of Genesis 3.15. Not with coercion and violence, but in truth, but in truth in love. Jesus crushed the head of the serpent under his heel. He counteracted the lie Satan told regarding the character of God and has died as the sacrificial lamb. And so it was in Jesus that every aspect of the sin problem was resolved. Shame fear, covering, hiding, and blaming. Number one, the cross reveals God's free forgiveness of our sins, thus lifting our shame and restoring our innocence before Him. Number two, the cross relieves our illegitimate fear of God by repainting His true character upon our hearts. Number three, the cross provides the true covering we need the love of God that effectually covers a multitude of sins. 1 Peter 4.8 Number four, 
The cross draws us out to God, out of our hiding places, our obsessions, our addictions, to every self-destructive behavior, into the light of his reassuring love. And the cross gives us the moral, or number five, and the cross gives us the moral courage to cease blaming others and take responsibility for our sins through confession and repentance. All our world's heroes, myths, tell the common story of danger and deliverance. But all of them fall short of our real need. We know we're in trouble, but ultimately we don't need a hero to save us from some sort of physical violence or physical danger. We need a savior to deliver us from the deception of the devil. That's what's holding us back from eternal life. Jesus the Savior, He is the one that we desperately need. In the beautiful light that streams from the cross of Christ, I invite you to turn to Him, to give your heart to Him, to place your sins upon Him and receive the forgiveness of God through Him and to receive Him as your personal Savior. No more shame, no more fear, no more vain efforts to cover your sins, no more hiding in whatever obsessions or addictions that bind you, no more blaming others. There was an interesting story that I thought of. Some years ago, there was a, it was a hot summer day in South Florida, and a little boy decided to go for a swim in his, in his swimming hole out back. So as he runs out the back door, he's leaving his shirt and his shoes, and he's just heading straight for that pool. He's going to cool off. And as a, in a, since he was in such a hurry, he jumped into the water, and he didn't notice being in Florida, and something you should pay attention to, but he didn't notice that an alligator was in the, the uh, swimming hole and it was headed towards him. Now his mom was in the house and she was looking out the window and she saw the two getting closer and closer to each other. And of course, she panics, she runs out, she starts screaming and hollering and, you know, come back, come back. Now the son hears her distress and hears her, so he, you know, turns around real quickly and starts coming back. Of course, at this point, it's too late. Right as he reaches for his mom on the dock to grab a hold, the alligator grabs a hold of his legs and now starts the tug of war. Now, she's screaming and she's crying out for help and a farmer passing along the road beside uh, where they live happens to hear them. So he stops, he runs to what's going on and, you know, being a farmer, he had some uh, a gun on him. Um, and so he takes aim at the alligator and shoots it and saves the little boy. Naturally, the alligator was much stronger than the mom, but the mom had much more passion to save her son. Now, remarkably, after weeks and weeks in the hospital, the little boy was healed, but it left scars, of course. And a newspaper reporter came and interviewed the little boy, and he wanted to see the scars left by the alligator. So the little boy pulls up his legs, pulls up his pants and shows the legs. And then, but the, the boy with being so proud and happy, he says, look at the, look at the scars on my arm because my mom would not let go. We can all identify with that little boy. We all have scars. Probably not nothing so dramatic or, or visible, but we all have scars of a painful past.
some of those scars are cause us deep regret. But some of the wounds, some of them are because God never let go. He's been holding on to us the whole time. Scripture teaches us that God loves you. If you have Christ in your life, you have become a child of God. He wants to protect you, to provide you in every way. But but we sometimes foolishly wade into dangerous situations. The swimming hole of life is filled with perils and we forget the enemy is waiting to attack. But that's when the tug of war happens. If you have scars of His love on your arms, be very grateful that He did not and will not let you go. He says, With everlasting love I have drawn you. You are mine. Will you be His? Is that your desire? Will you respond to Him now? If this is your wish, please stand with me. If you desire this, please stand and pray with me. And if you would like to make this prayer your own, simply say Amen after me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for the gift of salvation, the gift of Your Son that You gave Your only begotten Son to save us. That we can break free from the lies and the deception, the the causes of the devil to give us this misconception of Your character. That we can truly see the, the true character of God in His sacrifice. God, we, we thank You so much for never letting go. That the scars that we see, these scars, half of them are from You, from not letting go of us. God, we, we ask that You bestow us with the Holy Spirit so that we may know You better, so that we may know Your will. God, we ask these in all things. In Jesus Christ's name, Amen.